The National Science Foundation has joined up with the Czech Science Foundation, the NSF's counterpart in the Czech Republic. The two agencies are funding research into an area you probably never thought of, namely how to produce gamma rays with high-powered lasers. How about that? Someone's got to think about it. One of them joins me now. She's the head of the NSF's Office of International Science and Engineering, Kendra Sharp. Dr. Sharp, good to have you on. Thanks so much, Tom. It's such a pleasure to be here. And before we get to how this is all set up programmatically, tell us about why gamma rays and their production with high-powered lasers is important enough for at least a million dollars of this joint grant program. Sure. Well, I can tell you this is a really unique opportunity for our U.S. scientists working with the Czech scientists. They have access now to what's called an extreme light infrastructure that is able to make high-powered lasers at a degree that was previously not possible on Earth. So this type of energy is observed out in space, but it's not been observed on Earth. And it really does facilitate new applications in material science and what we might call as extreme imaging to be able to generate these types of gamma rays. Now, I have hanging in my office a piece of, I guess, about eighth-inch thick steel that has a hole in it and a melting runoff from that hole that was produced by a laser in a Mm -hmm. Navy test center. We're talking about something more powerful than what is available now in laser-directed energy? Yes, absolutely. It's a real step forward in terms of science. And what has been the limitation in doing it here on Earth? So there's limitations in terms of the infrastructure and the science, and that's what the particular facility that's available in the Czech Republic is part of an EU-funded suite of infrastructure facilities. So it's a combination of working with actually an industry partner to generate what's considered a target, and that allows this level of gamma ray to be produced with this type of infrastructure on the lasers. So it's really, it's an advance in infrastructure. And is the sense of this program that energy created from gamma rays into laser-like power has more than simply military applications? Absolutely. No, the applications are across the gamut, health applications, material science applications, imaging, for example, scanning containers as they're coming into the country. So there are a lot of applications well beyond military applications. But first, we have to figure out how to do it then. That's correct. Yes. All right. And uh, tell us more about the relationship dealing with the Czech Republic, a small country, but it sounds like they have some pretty good scientific chops to get the NSF attention. They absolutely do. So I can tell you that our counterpart is an organization, the abbreviation is G-A-C-R, and it is pronounced typically referred to as Gatcher. So this is a collaboration between NSF and this organization, Gatcher. This is something that developed over time. At the National Science Foundation, we are really all about advancing research. That's one of our foremost priorities is advancing the research. And in doing that, we're committed to international science collaboration. Partners have to share our core values, but really we're committed to identifying opportunities where U.S. researchers can advance science in a way that they can't do on their own, and that requires the international partnership. We work very closely with the Department of State and the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, too, as we're setting up these types of partnerships. So the one that we're talking about today, the Czech Science Foundation, this is one that developed over a period of years. And it was NSF staff were exploring opportunities to figure out what were the real strengths, what were the collective strengths between the U.S. and Czech scientific communities. So they identified a number of areas. One particular area was this plasma physics. And this was identified, as I said, through a series of delegations, both to the Czech Republic from U.S. and Czech Republic to visiting the National Science Foundation. 
So this happened over a period of years. We also had an embassy science fellow. So one of our program officers participated in an embassy science fellowship actually in the Czech Republic. And that's really what's led to this particular area of collaboration that we're talking about today. All right. We're speaking with Dr. Kendra Sharp. She's head of the National Science Foundation's Office of International Science and Engineering. She's also a professor of mechanical engineering at Oregon State University. And who were the parties involved in actually doing the research, the grantees? Academia, I presume, but also you mentioned there's corporate involvement. There is. So the first award under this partnership, it was just announced last month, and this is the one that's using these novel methods to produce gamma rays. The NSF award is to the University of California, San Diego. It is a three-year award, and on the U.S. side, the NSF funds are $632,000. And then there is a Czech partner, and General Atomics is an industry partner that is involved in producing these targets that allow, really, the generation of these gamma rays. Just, you'll have to explain, just to diverge into science for a minute, how does a target result in the generation of the beam that's hitting it? So the experiments consist of a laser hitting a particular target. The targets, so these can be really sophisticated, multi-layered, and they can take weeks or months to produce, or it can be a puff of gas or a drop of liquid in space that's under a high vacuum. So what's going on here is General Atomics is developing a very rapid target delivery system for high repetition rate experiments. So that's also something new is the repetition rate that is accessible under this particular facility. But it's actually, it's kind of the space where the laser, the target is the space that the laser hits, which then leads to the interesting physics. I see. So the laser produces gamma from the target. Yes. So the target's required in order to produce these gamma rays. I see. So you're not shooting gamma gamma rays. rays. You're producing gamma rays by shooting at something with a laser. That's right. So it's the interaction between the very high intensity laser light and the target that produces those extreme gamma rays. Okay. Then just what is the timeline for this? When do you expect to have something that could be demonstrable? And what about the intellectual property thus produced, given that there is general atomics involvement here? In terms of intellectual property, typically NSF's awardees, so those are U.S. universities and research institutions, handle the intellectual property. There are some provisions under the U.S. Department of State and the Czech Republic Science and Technology Agreement. That's an umbrella for our bilateral cooperation, and there are some provisions on intellectual property there. Um, I think, you know, suffice it to say that the, the people generating the intellectual property are, they're encouraged to share software and inventions that are created, but really it's often handled primarily by the NSF's awardees. And I get the sense in general that even though lasers have been around for several decades, we're still at the dawn of the possible uses of them. Am I correct in that? I think so. I can tell you I've used them in my own research. So my own research started out as using laser diagnostics to look at fluid motion. So what we did is we shot lasers, we shot laser sheets into some sort of flow field. In one case, it was for mixing applications. And then we took pictures of particles at one time instant and another and and used statistical correlation methods to deduce the um, fluid flow. So, I mean, lasers have been in use for decades. They've been in use, you know, in that case, that was an application where it was used for um, experimental fluid mechanics. And that was 25 years ago that I started doing that. But there's so much more that we can do with them. And this particular facility is just offering a really new capability. Right. So it sounds like even mechanical engineering is no longer the sole activity that you might get in an erector set and a micrometer. (laughs) 
That's right. No, I'm, I'm all about the fluid motion. All it. right. Dr. Kendra Sharp is head of the National Science Foundation's Office of International Science and Engineering and professor of mechanical engineering at Oregon State University. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Focus your gamma rays on the Federal Drive. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really 
sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. 
And I re- realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? And I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.